Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is 365 Honest Questions About the Bible. I'm your long-suffering host, Dante Stack. Today, we're on question 59. Do animals have souls? Well, do they? And before we get going, I have to note, isn't it strange that in the movie All Dogs Go to Heaven, not all dogs go to heaven? Man, that reminds me of this nightmare I had when I was a kid. Maybe I've even talked about this before. I'm in heaven. Like, I had this dream when I was a kid, and it's the classical, you know, heaven's made up of a bunch of clouds, and we're all in white robes and strumming harps and stuff. And it's like a Monday morning, and somehow, some way, I'm there in heaven, but I just broke like a glass ornament or something that's in heaven. And it's Monday, and Jesus is coming by leading like a pack of my friends to the pool. And he says, sorry, Dante, you can't go today. You can't go to today's Monday pool day because you broke the glass thing. It was really depressing. (laughs) But anyway, today's question is, do animals have souls? And maybe more concretely put, do animals resurrect? Do animals go to heaven? Do all dogs go to heaven? Or is it like the movie where there's a real chance of not heaven? Here we go. Do animals have souls? Is there something more to them than mere flesh and bone? From a young age, intuitively, I felt like there has to be. And now, if I look into my dog's eyes, or I see envy in my dog's reactions to me playing with another dog, or sometimes guilt when we've come home and she's gotten into the trash and she knows we're gonna come and spank her for getting into the trash. She is clearly anticipating this or knows it's coming because she's already hiding long before we're yelling at her, giving her our stern bad dog voice. And this question, I know a lot of people don't think it's a big deal. Uh, I do. I really do. And hopefully I can show you why I think it is a big deal, why I'm choosing this question to be the question we end on, at least indeterminately. (laughs) As I said last week, I am suspending my campaign of this show. Hopefully I'll get a chance to come back to it, but for the foreseeable future, I am having to stop. There will be one more episode after this, but it'll be different. It's going to be like a roundtable discussion. Uh, That'll be hopefully in a couple weeks. But as far as regular episodes go, today's it. Question 59. Do animals have souls? And like I said, I believe this is an important question. I've got more scripture than usual to, to go through today, so let's not waste any time. Again, as I said in the preface, what I really mean by do animals have souls is do animals resurrect? Now, I've read some things where people say, yes, animals have souls, but they're temporal souls that die when the animal dies. Maybe that's true. It just doesn't make any sense to me, or it doesn't make the word soul have any meaning. Soul is a difficult word because it doesn't have a definition that we can all agree upon, right? So I'm kind of using it as a catch-all for, like, the stuff of you that goes beyond your body. So in Christian terms, when we say resurrect that we will be resurrected, it's usually the idea of soul, our identity, that we're talking about being resurrected, not necessarily our ingrown toenails, for instance. And at least for us, this idea of resurrection is center to the gospel. It's center to our hope. 
One of my favorite passages in all the Bible, probably, if you have to pin me down, probably my favorite, because I find it applicable in so many ways, and it sums it up nicely in a blunt way, a matter-of-fact way, is 1 Corinthians 15, 12-19. I'll read it now. This is Paul speaking. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who are fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Right? Paul's making the point, hey, the Romans are sending us to the lions. We're out in the middle of the gladiator theater getting eaten by lions day in, day out. There's no point to holding these convictions. There's no point to being a Christian if... All of our days, all of our stories just end with being eaten by a lion. If that's what this is all about, and pff, the story ends with getting your arm gnawed off by a hungry lioness, then what's the point? There's no glory in that. There's no gospel. There's no good news to being eaten by a lion. Paul is saying then, if we don't have another life, if there's no afterlife, if we don't resurrect, if we don't have heaven to look forward to, we are the stupidest people on the planet, and the most to be pitied, because our lives are full of this conviction of a reality that apparently isn't real, and the consequences of believing that reality are a horrible death. Hooray! You see, we who believe in Jesus, we who find hope in him, find an ultimate, enduring hope in the very nature of the resurrection. If there's no afterlife, we suck. We are the most to be pitied. That's what Paul's saying. I believe that. And this is why this question of animal souls matters. I had, as a child, a string of rats as pets. And despite the bad reputation rats have, they make wonderful pets. They're very loving, they're very sensitive, they're cuddly, and for being a little rodent, pretty intuitive, pretty intelligent. And I think I was five, maybe, maybe six, when I had my first rat. His name was Flash, and I don't really remember him very well, but I have a general feeling, general memory, that he lived about a year and then died. I don't remember how he died, but I do remember, you know, his death, maybe it was sad, but it also meant I got to go to the pet store with mom and get a new rat, a rat that would soon be named Flash 2. Well, right after I got Flash 2, of course, I'm excited to show Flash 2 off to everyone. And for some reason, I also had a piggy bank collection at this time. I guess maybe I wanted to be an accountant. And because I don't actually have an accountant's brain, I thought, the more piggy banks I own, the more money I'll get somehow. <laughs> you see, the piggy banks all fill up with cash, and I'll become rich. So having multiple piggy banks uh, will win the day. Anyway, it was a birthday party or something. I, some sort of family gathering was taking place, and I had just gotten Flash 2, just brought him home from the pet store, and what do you know, I'm in one corner of the room, and I'm watching my cousin 
playing with Flash 2, and I'm giving him some space, you know. I want to show how awesome Flash 2 is, so let every child, every friend, every relative play with Flash 2 on his own. And I watch in horror as he raises one of my piggy banks and then drops it on little Flash 2's head. And he didn't die right away, but I remember holding him, and he just had this little bit of blood, like, on his temple. And just being like, no, little Flash 2, no, I only had you a week. A week? This isn't right, no! And unlike my experience with Flash 1, you know, Flash 1, I had a long time. So I had this sense of, okay, animals don't live as long as humans, so it's okay. But, you know, Flash 2 here, this was murder in the second degree. He was a young little pipling. He wasn't full grown yet. Flash 2 had his whole life to look forward to and hear the injustice of this moment. That was the first time I remember feeling that internal groaning. Uh, another experience that drives this desire for there to be a resurrection home is the physical pain I saw my dog, Gracie, experience when, when she died. I remember it happened over the course of a few hours. It just seemed like she was having a system failure. We we didn't really know what was going on. We didn't take her to the vet. She died in our garage. And I remember it was like a series of tremors for her. And she would yelp and she would complain. And she lost control of her bladder. And right at the end, it was kind of like a, a very sudden, I don't know, 10 seconds of like full-on seizure almost. And then she expired. But I remember looking at her eyes and seeing this, this look of, of terror. It was nothing short of terror. There was no hope in her eyes. She didn't understand what was going on. She just was experiencing what I presume was intense pain and had no way of comprehending, no way of relegating this experience to some sort of understanding. She couldn't rationalize it in any way. I guess the hope for, for me, for humankind, when we die, whether that be in a bed in a hospital or on the battlefield, as it's happening, there's a certain understanding. Okay, I understand what's happening to my body. I understand the process I'm going through. It may be scary. It may hurt. But there's some sort of understanding, rationale underlying it. It's like as you step onto a roller coaster, you know, okay... This is a really scary thing. Your blood pressure is running. There's a certain amount of fear involved, especially if you don't like heights or you don't like roller coasters. But you've also mapped the roller coaster while you're waiting in line. You're looking at the biggest drops and you're thinking, okay, if I can survive that first huge drop, it's not as bad after that one. It's just getting through that first thing. There's none of that for the animal when it dies. I don't think the animal has any sense of, okay, if I just endure my heart stopping... Then I'm dead, and there will be no more pain. No, I looked in Gracie's eyes, and I saw terror. You see, when you ask this question, do animals have souls, or do animals have any chance of a resurrection, the most common responses I have found are, and by the way, I try to only ask this question of pastors or ministerial intelligentsia, not, you know, dog lovers who occasionally go to church. You know, I try to skew the polls towards those who would conceivably have a better understanding of what the true answer would be. Anyway, when I've tended to ask pastors and whatnot, they either tend to say, no, sorry, Dante, there's not, there's no evidence for that, or they just kind of throw up their hands and are like, eh, whatever, maybe, maybe not, 
Bible doesn't really say anything about that. But in either of those two responses, the rationale is kind of the same. Animals are separate and unequal <laughs> from humankind. It's not a separate but equal situation. It's a separate and unequal situation. For instance, one mission pastor that I know pretty well, he's the most loving person you'll run into, loves everyone, has a tremendous heart for the poor and tremendous heart just for people in general. He's slow to anger, full of compassion, loving kindness. If you met him, you would like him. He's that type of guy. But this loving feeling doesn't really extend to animals. He feels fine about him. He's not antagonistic, but he doesn't share his heart with an animal. He doesn't worry or feel for the suffering animal kingdom. Right in his mind, he's just like, okay, why should I worry about suffering llamas in Argentina when there are starving children in Argentina? And that rationale makes sense. I can't blame him for that. But when I spoke to him about this, I kind of sifted through what he was saying and feel like he was making two arguments. And I think these are the two strongest arguments for people who either don't care whether animals have souls or not, or think flatly that they don't. And the two arguments are, one, God doesn't give any sort of provision for animals in the Bible. He doesn't say, and on that day, every animal shall come up from the grave and bow bended knee before Jesus. The Bible doesn't say anything like that. So point one, the Bible doesn't give provision for animals in the afterlife. Doesn't mention it. Point two, we, humankind, humanity, mankind, have been given the responsibility of being caretakers to the animal kingdom. And the supposition out of that then is whatever happens to them, whatever injustice, whatever they experience, it's not so much God's responsibility, it's on us. It's our responsibility. And I'll read here from Genesis. This is usually where people will point you if they're trying to make this argument. Here's Genesis chapter 1, so the creation story, verses 26 through 30. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. A couple points to bring out of that. The first is the big one. Only humans were made in God's image. God doesn't say, when I made the porcupine, I made those little needles off of my own image. They're a reflection of my needle back. I bet you didn't know that about me. I have a needle back, for I am God. He doesn't say anything like that, right? There seems to be two categories. And secondly, and he says this twice, mankind has dominion, has authority over the animal kingdom. And he says that in a couple ways, but it's pretty thorough, right? You have authority, you have responsibility over the animal kingdom. Then, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, the scripture reads, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. 
Okay, so this is just an enumerating of Adam's authority or mankind's authority over the animal kingdom. He's naming them all. So I'm kind of holding back my pro-animal soul arguments here at this point, but I want to make clear here that, you know, there there is something to be said here in the argument of animals are under our protection. Whatever happens to them, God's given them unto us. So at the end of the day, it's my fault Flash 2 died. I should have been watching over him and not allowed my cousin pick up that piggy bank and drop it on his head. Now, that being said, let's take a look here at the other argument. The argument that God makes no provision for animals in the afterlife. It's an argument from silence, essentially, right? The Bible doesn't say anything about it, therefore it's probably not true. Okay, from the get-go, that's a difficult argument in my mind to make. Uh, if I've learned anything in the past year doing this show, I feel like more than ever... The Bible's not a user manual. The Bible is not something that's trying to answer every conceivable question we would ever have. But more than that, this argument that there's no provision for animals in the afterlife seems to ignore the fact that there's ongoing revelation. Whoa, 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 Dante, ongoing revelation. What on earth do you mean by that? The canon's closed. The Bible isn't still being written. Therefore, there's no more revelation. Okay, well, we can deal with that uh, later, maybe, but... First and foremost, as we move from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 21, or 22, God reveals things about himself, right? So remember 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, if we don't have a resurrection, we're the most to be pitied. Match that verse up with the life of Job. We've talked about Job a lot on this program. Job is the suffering servant in the Old Testament who is perfectly righteous, does everything that he's supposed to, but then, due to a wager that we don't really understand, everything's taken from Job. His children are all killed, all of his monetary wealth, his provisions are taken away, his wife curses him, he gets horrible, stinging boils on his head. I don't know why on his head. I made that up. Boils all over, not just his head. Maybe particularly his head, I don't know. So here's a guy who has done everything right and is suffering. This is Job chapter 14, pretty much right in the middle of the book. And most of the book, by the way, is just Job complaining and talking to his three friends that are saying, Job, you have sin, you have sin. That's the only reason it explains your pain. You have some secret sin. God is just. He's punishing you for something you've done, Job. Tell us what it is, Job. And Job just coming back and saying, no, no, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, Dear God, I'm innocent. Here he says in Job chapter 14, A man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last, and where is he? As waters fail from a lake, and a river wastes away and dries up, so a man lies down and rises not again, till the heavens are no more. He will not awake, or be roused out of his sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in shield, that you would conceal me until your wrath be past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? A few verses later, Job's still speaking. A man feels only the pain of his own body, and he mourns only for himself. Okay, Job is looking for justice, and he's coming to the point where he realizes there can't be justice for him in this life. So he's looking beyond, but he doesn't know anything about the resurrection. He says plainly, if a man dies, shall he live again? And I think that's an honest question. Job has no idea whether he will or not. 
Job's leaving it up in the air. A lot of people think that Job is either a fictionary character, and the whole book is kind of a, a book of poetry, essentially, a book trying to explain, you know, why is there suffering to the Jewish reader, because Job doesn't really appear to be a Jewish person. He's in a land that is very unclear. It almost seems like mythology of a certain sense. But King Solomon is certainly not a fictional character, and Ecclesiastes is a book I don't understand in the slightest. But Solomon, in all his wisdom, wrote it, and I've avoided it thoroughly thus far in 365 Honest Questions, but here, now, I'll read from his words in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 3, verses 16 through 22. This is, of course, Solomon talking to us. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts. For all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to the dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So, I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Solomon is saying, look, I don't know if there's an afterlife. I don't know if we're any different than the beast. It seems like we are the beasts. Enjoy today for today, folks, because there's nothing afterward. Again, I am not person you should go to when you have... Ecclesiastes questions, I don't get the book at all. I don't know if Solomon is trying to speak in someone else's voice. I don't understand what his point is. But taking this little section at face value, he seems to be saying the same sort of thing that Job is. That he doesn't know if there's a resurrection. He doesn't know if he's different than the rest of the animals. Obviously, something changes by the time Jesus comes on the field. Obviously, there's revelation from God to mankind about the afterlife, to Christians about resurrection. And more to the point here, I think if you look at this, this particular revelation of afterlife or of resurrection, you could come to the conclusion that it's essentially given on a need-to-know basis. Jesus hadn't come yet. He hadn't forgiven all sins. He hadn't been the final sacrifice. So there wasn't a need in the Old Testament for this concrete idea of a resurrection. Once he's on the stage, once Jesus dies and resurrects and becomes the first fruit of what's going to happen for the rest of us, now we need to know about the afterlife. We need to know something of the resurrection to understand the good news of the gospel. In that way, then, I would say that the ongoing revelation for us in the Bible is given on a need-to-know basis. For instance, we don't know much about angels. Do we need to know much about angels? Not really. In fact, the more we know about angels, seems the more we're going to, like, idolize them and make weird religions about them. There's a common place between San Marcos and Encinitas in San Diego County that my friends and I would drive to in the middle of the night in high school and college, and we would go into this forest area. Actually, it's called the Elfin Forest. And we would go to the gates of Quest Haven. Quest Haven being a cult that worships angels. Because, of course, we were looking for ghosts or demons or whatever. 
bumps in the night because there were tons of weird rumors and stories about the gates of Quest Haven and the area around Quest Haven and in Elfin Forest. Anyway, the point being, we know very little about angels, and yet there's a cult in Encinitas or San Marcos, I forget which city exactly, that worships angels. So, again, maybe we're not given more about animals, not because there isn't something, not because there's absence, but because we don't need to know it. The Bible is not written for animals. And I think we forget this, those of us who are in the Christian community. The Bible itself is not God. The Bible itself is not how we enter through the kingdom of heaven. The Bible itself is not salvation. The Bible itself is not who forgives us. The Bible itself is not a relationship with Jesus, is not a relationship with God. It's a tool that God has chosen to use for us. And yes, the Bible says it's living and acting and sharper than a two-edged sword. I don't really understand all those points. I don't understand what Paul meant when he said those things, but the Bible is not God. Therefore, the Bible is not for animals. Animals don't speak English. They don't speak ancient Greek. They don't speak ancient Hebrew. As far as I know, animals don't speak much of any language, except gorillas, which we'll talk about in a moment. Maybe dolphins, too. I don't know. Chimps and parrots. You know, parrot was talking to me at the zoo on Saturday. I know parrots supposedly are just parroting and they don't understand what they're saying, but sometimes, sometimes it seems like they do understand. The point is, I don't think there's any argument out there that can sufficiently say that animals don't have an afterlife, that animals don't resurrect. Now, I have essentially got two arguments for why one could believe that animals do have souls. I want to start with the weaker one, and then we'll end this thing with the stronger argument. The first argument is kind of in response to the whole mankind is responsible for animals, that they're entirely under our dominion. My answering argument to that is, yeah, but God uses animals. He uses them a lot. He uses them to glorify himself. He uses them to move people around. So it'd be strange to me that God would use something that he's created and not express loving kindness to it, not express compassion, not extol his virtues toward it. When Jesus rides a donkey into Jerusalem, the triumphant entry, the Pharisees shout out to his people that are worshiping him, more or less tells them to shut up. Jesus answers the Pharisees saying in Luke 19.40, I tell you, if these people were silent, the very stones would cry out. Okay, that's not animals, but it's saying all creation serves God. Isaiah 55.12 says, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth in singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. All of creation, not just mankind, is a part of the process, is a part of glorifying God is a part of worship. All right, a really funny story. 2 Kings chapter 2, 23 through 25. And we really, really, if we ever come back to this show, need to do a question based on this small little passage. It's bizarre, and we could get totally hung up on the wrong thing here. Maybe we will. Let's read it and see if we get hung up. This is taking place just when Elisha is coronated a prophet after Elijah. So Elisha went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head! Go up, you bald head! And Elisha turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods 
and tore 42 of the boys. From there, he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there, he returned to Samaria. <laughs> so, apparently, there were some bully boys that were making Elisha feel bad about being bald, and so Elisha cursed them, which resulted in God commanding two bears to come out of the woods and massacre 42 boys. Okay, this story probably isn't worth bringing up because it's so weird and it makes me feel uh, angry and frustrated and I don't really like that it exists <laughs> and I don't know how that's just, but for the sake of our purposes right now, here's an instance where God was going to do something and he uses a bear, two bears, two she-bears, to dole out this justice or whatever. To dole out this punishment is probably a better word. Likewise, we see over and over again the lion and the lamb. These two animals being used as very, very effective metaphors for Jesus himself. Jesus is the lion and the lamb. And we know the kingdom has come when the lion, the great predator of the field, sleeps with the lamb. The most cuddly sweet of the animals of the field. But of course, if we're talking about animals, we have to tell the funniest, most bizarre, fun story in all the animal kingdom in the Bible. Numbers, chapter 22, 22 through 35. We're following this weird guy named Balaam, who is, by the way, one of the only people, or he may be the only Old Testament figure that wasn't a king, that we know exists apart from the Bible, right? So there are other writings out there about Balaam, dated to the same time period, that aren't from the Jews. Very fascinating. Anyway, here's a little story about Balaam. And we're kind of starting in the middle of the story, but bear with it. But God's anger was kindled because Balaam went out, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now Balaam was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road, with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Here's the fun part. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and the donkey said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, apparently not amused that his donkey is speaking, Because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey, on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And Balaam said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you, because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. Okay, 
So, we've got a talking donkey. Full-on Chronicles of Narnia situation here. But maybe the most interesting little tidbit here is when the angel of the Lord says to Balaam, Hey, if that donkey didn't do what it did, I would have killed you, and I would have let her live. One way to read that is, the donkey's sinless in this situation. The donkey didn't do anything wrong. In fact, the donkey did the right thing. So, if I'm a just angel of the Lord, I kill you, because you're the one sinning. The donkey's not sinning. I'm going to let the donkey live. The donkey requires justice. The donkey gets justice because I work for the Lord, and the Lord is just. Isn't that interesting? Justice for the donkey. Before we go into this justice thing, which is the bulk of my argument, the second prod of my two-prod argument, a quick aside. Snakes. I don't like them. A snake bit my dog last year. We had to take the dog to the vet. It's a poisonous snake. I don't like the snakes. And according to Genesis chapter 3, you know, it's the serpent, it's the snake in the Garden of Eden that leads Adam and Eve to sin. Thusly, God curses the serpent. He curses the snake. He gives a curse that many think is the first prophecy of Jesus in all the Bible, saying that the snake will hurt man's heel, but man will stomp on his head. I think snakes are little demons running around, slithering around. I don't like them. And I'm happy if they're not going to be resurrected. And I feel like since the Bible only calls out one animal of all the animals to curse, and it's a snake, I feel okay with that. And if you're the type of person that has a snake as a pet, I don't know what to say to you. Never bring the snake over to my apartment. Maybe we shouldn't be friends. That's all. Also, you know, being a rat lover as a child and knowing that snakes eat rats. Also, I heard this horrible, horrible story of my friend who had a snake, that when they would go to the store, they would buy pinkies, you know, rats that were just born, or mice that were just born, that don't have any fur yet, don't have eyes open, they're just little pink blobs, more or less. And they'd drop a little pinky in the cage for the snake to eat, and if the snake wasn't hungry yet, the pinky would come and snuggle up to the snake for warmth. The, the, the pinky needs warmth, it needs milk, it needs, it needs stuff, and it doesn't have eyes, so it can't see. So it snuggles up to the warm snake, and the snake just lets it snuggle. It lets it snuggle. And then it betrays it by eating it whole. I hate snakes. Indiana Jones is on my side. That's all I have to say about that. But, guys, here's the reason why this question is important. God is just. If our God isn't just, then he's bad, right? He's a bad guy. Some years ago, I was watching a documentary about Coco the gorilla. You may have heard about Coco. Scientists worked with Coco most of her life, and Coco uh, has a little pet cat. And I remember being a little kid and like having a flip book of Coco and Coco's cat. Um, and Coco speaks in sign language. But I was watching this documentary about Coco, and it also followed some other gorillas that also speak sign language. And, sorry, I, I'm not going to have a link or anything. I didn't look it up. Couldn't find it uh, in my prep, this old video that I watched. But I remember it distinctly, and it was like an interview with this gorilla. And the interviewer asked, do you remember your mother? Okay, first of all, that is a really abstract question to ask a gorilla, right? I can understand having communication with an animal that's very concrete. Like, I'm holding an apple in my hand. Do you want it? Like, you know, I say commands to my dog, but all the commands are very concrete things. None of the commands are, Sierra, be virtuous. It's certainly not, Sierra, do you remember your mother? I don't have a sense that dogs have much of a memory. I feel like they're always living in the now. 
That's not to say memory doesn't play a part with the now, but anyway. Obviously, very difficult question for this gorilla to answer. And I remember the gorilla immediately starts responding with the sign for, like, tear. Like, it's just putting a finger up to his eyes and pushing the finger down his face. Like, like he's crying. Like, he's imitating what tears do. And then the interviewer asks, like, why are you just saying crying, crying, crying? And then the gorilla goes on to in fragmented signs and statements, but seemingly very clearly to suggest that he knew his mother and he remembers when poachers killed his mother. He does a sign for a gun. He does a sign for I was once like cuddled. Then this bad gun came. Then I cried. Then I cried. Then I cried. An animal with a memory. Of course, there's infamous accounts of how elephants have burial rituals. Elephants mourn their dead. Hippos mourn their dead. Hippos have apparently a quite intricate ritual they go through as a community when one of their fellow hippos dies. The shorter Westminster Catechism, something unfortunately I was kind of raised on, the very first question asks, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what is the point of man? Why is man alive? What is the reason for man's existence? And the answer in the Westminster Catechism is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If you ask the same question of the animal kingdom, what is the chief end of the animal kingdom? What is the reason the animal kingdom exists? Doesn't it have to be the same thing? It's not anything different to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It has to be the same, right? But in one statement, the real reason God must resurrect the animals, or in my view, the real reason why God should resurrect animals is because it is the most just thing to do. And God is just. Here, from Acts chapter 17, verses 29 through 31. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Of course, this man he's talking about is Jesus. Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. This is Jesus speaking. So have no fear of these people, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, God. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. I'm not here to argue that we're not more valuable than the animal kingdom. Jesus says that right here in this passage plainly. But God knows those two sparrows. He knows the hairs on our head. He knows the feathers on the sparrow. See, here's the thing when we talk about justice. We're going to get more than our fair share of justice. We're given mercy upon justice. We, humans, have this sinful nature. We suck. We screwed up. We make mistakes. But as far as we can tell, the animal kingdom is merely groaning. For lack of a better word, the animal kingdom is sinless. Yet they suffer under the same burdens, the same consequences that we sinful people do in this decrepit, broken-down world. Read here, 
from Romans 8, verses 18 through 25. This is Paul talking. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the whole creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The whole creation. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Right here is a gospel for all creation. Paul's saying right here, all creation, all the animals, all the birds, all the trees, all the fish, they're under bondage. They're slaves to the broken world, slaves to the corruption, and they're waiting, dying to see the world made right again. Paul continues, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul saying humans, those who are redeemed, get the first fruits of the new creation, the first fruits of God's story being fulfilled of the new heaven and the new earth, the newness, God making all things right. We get the first fruits. Who gets the second fruits? I think it's the animal kingdom. It's the rest of creation. My favorite part of the movie, The Passion of the Christ. Say what you will about that film. I think there are some powerful moments. And most powerful to me is when the movie sticks some words that Jesus says in the book of Revelation, and they put it in his mouth as he's carrying the cross. In the movie, he's carrying the cross to Golgotha, He's being whipped, he's already been flogged, and he sees his mother in the crowd as he's carrying the cross. And he can't even carry the burden of this cross, and he falls down, and she tries to help him, but she obviously can't. There are powers beyond Mary's comprehension here at work, and the Roman authorities are going to kill their man. But Jesus looks at his mother and says, Behold, I am making all things new. All things! My dog, Gracie! All things! She's one of the all things, isn't she? Flash 2! He's one of the all things, isn't he? Speaking of Revelation, it's the last book of the Bible, and it's one of the few times, aside from the Gospels, where we hear from Jesus himself. He speaks. And right at the beginning, he has words for seven churches. And he ends each of his little words to each of the seven churches with a different proclamation of what's going to come. So I'm going to read off all these proclamations, and just for... Time's sake, I'm not going to read, you know, which verse and chapter each little one is from. But if you're curious, you can look them all up on our show notes at DanteStack.com. Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Here he's going, and he's giving us all these promises of what the age to come is going to be like. Next one. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. We saw in Genesis how Adam named all the animals. Here Jesus is saying, in the new creation, I'll give you a new name. A new name. It's going to be wonderful. Next one. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Next one. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, 
and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Next one. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. We'll have God's name written on us. Next one. Last one. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. All these promises, all these promises for us, not for the animals, right? My favorite poem of all time is written by Lord Byron. I'll read it now. It's called Epitaph to a Dog. When some proud son of man returns to earth, Unknown to glory, but upheld by birth, the sculptor's art exhausts the pomp of woe, and storied urns record who rests below. When all is done upon the tomb is seen, not what he was, but what he should have been. But the poor dog, in life the firmest friend, the first to welcome, foremost to defend, whose honest heart is still his master's own, who labors, fights, lives, breathes for him alone, Unhonored falls, unnoticed all his worth, denied in heaven the soul he held on earth, while man, vain insect, hopes to be forgiven, and claims himself a soul-exclusive heaven. O man, thou feeble tenant of an hour, debased by slavery or corrupt by power, who knows thee well must quit thee with disgust, degraded mass of animated dust. Thy love is lust, thy friendship all a cheat, thy tongue hypocrisy, thy heart deceit, by nature vile. Ennobled but by name, each kindled brute might bid thee blush for shame. Ye, who behold perchance this simple urn, pass on. It honors none you wish to mourn. To mark a friend's remains, these stones arise. I never knew but one, and here he lies. How is it just that we, the scum of the earth, get forgiveness, get God's name written on our hearts, get new names? get to sit on God's throne. But my dog? My dog who only loves me. My dog who always follows me. My dog who would sacrifice herself for me. My dog dies in a pile of her own urine, crying out with fear in her eyes, not knowing what's happening to her. Last week in our apartment, it was evening, and we had our porch door open, and all of a sudden, we hear a car hit a dog on the road just by our apartment, and you could hear the dog scream and moan, and our dog, our dog started making a little high-pitched noise in her own throat. She was empathizing, and she didn't know what was going on, and then she came to us, she ran to Danae, my wife, to, to be comforted. Isn't it just for God to do something for these creatures? It's not like he doesn't have the power. Yeah, sure, a bug doesn't have the value that I do, doesn't have the value that you do, but God still made it. He still took time to form it, right? He knows its curves. He knows when this barrow dies. Isn't it just to resurrect them? Isn't it just that their groaning could stop? God's given us authority over the animals. And maybe because of that, we fall in love with the animals. I love my dog. I love many animals. One of the last verses of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, goes like this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. How can every tear be wiped away if the animal kingdom never had justice, if the animal kingdom never got to find 
peace. Never got an end to their mourning. You see, this question matters to me because it impugns my image of God if you simply come to me and say, all animals return to the dust and creation groans until the very end. Then I have to live with the memories of all the animals that, that died unjustly because of man's sin. When I was in Alaska, there was a serial puppy torturer. This wicked mind, this black heart, would go around torturing puppies. You're a puppy, you're the cutest thing in all creation, and you face the vilest, the most painful, the inexpressible, the guttural pains, the absolute terror. How does that puppy coincide with an all-loving God? Unless, unless, that puppy who spent some miserable hours on the face of this earth, he himself will be redeemed. That is the God I want to believe in. I don't want to believe that my love for, for creation could surpass God's affection for it. No, it can't, right? If God is love, his affection, his love has to be greater than mine. However much I love my dumb dog Sierra, God loves her more. And if I get to resurrect, if I get to sit on God's throne, I want my dog by my side. Or at least I want to know my dog also gets to live merrily in the new kingdom. Because I love my dog, and I know God loves my dog more than me. Therefore, shouldn't God also want to resurrect her, if I want to? I don't rightly know the definitive answer, but I'm telling you, this is what my heart wants to believe, and this is the God I want to believe in. In one of my small groups, the, it appears this will be the group that, when we do the roundtable discussion, which may actually be the very, very last episode, it'll be with these gentlemen. But we've been looking at the book of Job. And one of the things that's been jumping off the page to me is that Job's belief in God comes from what Job needs God to be, what he necessitates God to be. All of Job's friends are saying God works like a balance. For the righteous, he does good things. For the wicked, he does bad things. If it's raining on you, it's because you did something wrong, Job. And while we can look at that now, those of us who believe in the Bible and say, no, that's not who God is, that's not how it works. Job didn't have the Bible. He didn't know better. But he stuck to his conviction that if there was a God that created him and created him in love and created everything in love, then he has to be this way. I know even in saying that there's like a thousand doubts and there's a thousand ways that I can turn what I just said and make it sound crooked and make it stand for a thousand other horrible things, make it stand for perverse forms of love. But I'm staying on topic and I'm just talking about animals and I'm talking to you from my heart. Thank you for staying with me for these 59 episodes. If you've listened to all of them, I appreciate being heard. My hope for you is that you'll wrestle not with me, not with your neighbor, but with God himself. Wrestle him to know him. This is Dante Stack signing out. Peace be the journey.